Please turn with me in your Bibles again to the book of Song of Solomon, chapter 7. Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, chapter 7. We have in this book a collection of poetry, of poems, and although these poems have different parts to them, they weave together in a plot. They tell us a story, a love story. It's a story of a king and his beloved. And the book begins, if you'll recall, with the bride celebrating the king, and she very quickly turns the attention towards herself. Remember, she says, I'm dark. Don't look at me. Anxiety comes in. She feels anxious about her appearance. And the king reassures her with his words and with his actions, with his love. They they go on to celebrate their love together. And later the bride speaks and she talks about a wall that's between them, separating them. She can't be united with her king. And the king remedies that by inviting her into marriage. The king enters into Jerusalem for the wedding day, like Yahweh processing from the desert to Mount Jerusalem, like his ark being brought into the temple. The same language is used, and the marriage is entered into. In the same language of Israel being united to Yahweh in the land of promise, like a renewed Garden of Eden, as if the fall in Genesis 3 hadn't happened yet, or at all. But then we get to chapter 5, and the bride's enthusiasm for the wedding day, it wanes. It's not sustained. The glow of the honeymoon has dissipated, and she rejects the knock at the door that her husband taps in the middle of the night. The king doesn't storm away. In fact, he leaves a blessing for her on the door, and this blessing prompts her to reconsider the glories of her king and then to go out and to seek him. In chapter 6, she realizes that, well, he's done what he always does. He's gone down to his garden, and she recalls the words that he had previously said to her, and, and these words move her to go to the garden to find her beloved king, and she finds him. She not only finds him, she finds that he has made preparations for her arrival, and he's ready to sweep her off her feet. And so we have, so far, the full movement of a married couple from dating to marriage to conflict within the marriage to separation that comes from that conflict. And tonight we'll see the reunion, the restoration, the reconciliation of parties that were previously estranged. Let's look at chapter 7. We'll read it together. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel. Your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all of your delights. Your stature 
is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree. I will lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see whether the vines have budded, whether the great blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh, my beloved. Let's pray. Father, we have a text that is, feels very distant and foreign to us. We're separated by thousands of years, by many, many miles from Jerusalem to Montgomery. But we pray that you would help us to see this text clearly, to understand it, and to see our great bridegroom more because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll begin by looking at the first five verses and seeing the first point, which is this, the, the bride's beauty praised. The bride's beauty praised. And before we get to exactly what the king says, we should note what we do not find in chapter 7. We don't find the voice of a king full of resentment. We don't find bitterness. We don't find reciprocal rejection. This is the king that just got the stiff arm. But what we find is open arms. He's, he's ready to welcome her back, to receive her. He's eager even to reconcile with her, even though he was the one that was rejected before. Not even getting into the audacity of someone telling a king, no, you can't do that in that day. But he is here, he's ready, he's eager for her return, and we see in his words, we see sweet words, intimate words, sensual even, poetry, wherein the king is describing his beautiful bride. His words are similar to the words used by the bride in chapter 5, where she described the king. She went from top to bottom as if he were a statue. Remember, he's got alabaster legs and golden arms and things like that. But here, the king is doing the same, but he's inverting the order. He starts with the feet. I'm not really sure what the significance of inverting the order is, other than the fact that he's starting with the dirtiest part of her body, the feet. And he's praising them. Those feet that she, just a chapter ago, couldn't be bothered to get out of bed and get dirty and go open the door. He starts by praising those same feet. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. He doesn't merely see them as pretty, as if she has pretty toes, which maybe she did. But he sees her as, as precious. He says, your, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Her shape is lovely to him, like precious stones, hand cut and polished, honed by a master jeweler. It's it's language that's reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. 
We have the, the master craftsman, the creator himself, creates a garden. And it says in Genesis 2.12 that the land that God had made, that the garden had gold and onyx in it. Your beauty is like that of a perfectly polished, untarnished garden. The garden where man and woman first walked together in purity and holiness and in communion. Precious and handcrafted you are, like Eve was herself. She was made by the hand of the Lord to be custom fit for Adam. A helpmate fit for him, even to be Adam's glory, to use Paul's language from 1 Corinthians 11. She was hand fit, crafted just for him. And so too is the beloved here in the eyes of her king. But not only is this, this bride precious to the king, she's also delightful. She's delightful. Your, your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Standards of beauty were a little bit different back then than they were today. But the roundedness of her shape and of her belly, which is in the next part of the verse, was a sign of not only fertility but blessing. You weren't gaunt and starved. The Lord had blessed you with plenty to eat. And her body is, is like a king's cup, a king's goblet that never lacks for high-quality wine. Your, your beauty is a treat. It's a decadent treat for me, a pleasant vision. It brightens my eyes like wine does, delightful from top to bottom. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. And that one's a little harder. Uh, the, the meaning here of, of wheat and the lilies, the exact meaning is tough to bring into English. It could be that there's some double entendre there of the, the image of wheat being encircled by lilies. It could be that the wheat refers to fertility. Either way, I think what's clear is that we have a suggestive description of the woman's appearance, of, a, of an unveiled body that is beautiful to the king and without shame like Adam and Eve in the garden before the curse. She and her beauty delight him and there's nothing shameful about her in the eyes of her beloved king. But not only is she precious and delightful, she's also fruitful. The king praises her fruitfulness. Your, verse 3, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. This is language that they've used before in this book. Chapter 4, verse 5. The king likens her breast to young, graceful, tender animals like a fawn. And the point is not so much a one-to-one -one correspondence in the actual appearance, but the poetic praising of her beauty by comparing it to tender, fruitful, beautiful language used of the promised land under the blessing of Yahweh. As we noted before, the description of the love between these two lovers and the beauty therein is used in terms of fertility, bounty, new life, all tied up in imagery used of the land in the Old Testament, the land flowing with milk and honey. It's as if he's saying, your love, my beloved, your beauty, indeed our marriage bed, is compared to the fruitful experience of God's covenantal blessing on the land and his people united to him in it. Which segues perfectly to the next verse, which seems very strange to our ears. He's praising her beauty, and he says, your neck is like a big tower. 
That sounds strange. Your eyes are like pools. Again, it's similar to what's said in chapter 4, verse 4, and chapter 6, verse 4. The king's comparing to the, the, the bride's beauty using language of towers and cities. And the tower is linked to the protection that a city receives under the king, under the Davidic king. And the cities hint at the expanding boundaries of the land of promise. It says, your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looks outward towards Damascus. And so like Adam, who was given the task of subduing, having dominion, and expanding the borders of the garden all over God's creation, like Israel, who was supposed to dwell with Yahweh and represent His name to the nation, so too this bride is secure and fruitful, overflowing with beautiful bounty. And this fruitfulness has, a, has an additional flavor to it. A, a regal note, a royalty type language is used. Look in verse 5. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. It's using the language of the throne, of royalty. Purple locks doesn't literally mean she had purple hair. Purple was the color of money, of, of wealth. It was a very expensive dye, again, hinting at her preciousness. But it was also the color of royalty because it was associated also with the tabernacle and the temple. So again, we've got these themes of tabernacle, temple, land, garden, all being woven together in this bride's appearance. And so the author is praising his beloved in terms of God's purposes and those purposes being fulfilled by the flourishing of his people and the land that he provides, the worship that he ordains, the security of his love and his covenantal favor. So what do we do with all that? Like That's interesting. Now what? What does this have to do with us today? Well, the king uses language and, and categories of what matters most to him, like blessing versus cursing, fruitfulness rather than barrenness, land, security, royalty. He applies all those things in poetic praise of his bride and his marriage. And so, how do you think about your marriage? You ever think about your marriage in that way as, as what it is, a sacred picture? Your marriage ought to be an illustration of communion and of intimacy. Every marriage, not just yours, every marriage is meant to be a picture, to teach us something and indeed to point us to someone. The marriage here in our text points to Yahweh's love for His people. Unfailing, secure, unstoppable. The same is true for Christ and His bride. Unfailing and unstoppable love. So do you love your spouse that way? So so strongly, so sacrificially that you'd be willing to pursue them and woo them back, invite them back in, even though you got the stiff arm. That's what the king does here. The king was rejected, and yet he still pursues. He awaits. He, he prepares for her. He doesn't try to reprove her. When she comes down to the garden, he doesn't show up with a list of all the ways that she's failed. He waits for her in love, and he woos her back with kindness. The same is true of our, our king. 
our bridegroom. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Let's go on to the second point, verses 6 through 9. And we'll see the king's intention. The king's intention. Verse 6 starts a new section and it and marks it by repeating the same opening refrain from verse 1. He says, how beautiful, how beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all of your delights. He's, he's praising the beauty, the, the sweetness of his bride. And then we get into verse 7, which contains some details which don't clearly transfer without a little bit of Hebrew. So I, I won't bore you, but I'll give you a little bit. On the surface of verse 7, which says, your stature is like that of a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. He's not just saying you're really tall or you're really thin or you're top heavy or something like that. He seems to be praising her physical appearance and like really good poetry, there's layers to the meaning. He is saying something that she's pretty, like a stately um, tree. But he's not merely saying that. The word translated palm tree is actually the Hebrew word tamar. And for those of you who know your Old Testament well, you'll recall that there are two episodes, two shameful events in the history of Israel that involve a woman whose name was Tamar. And the first is in Genesis 38, where Judah uses his daughter-in-law, Tamar, as a prostitute, which is a horrific perversion of God's original design for marriage and intimacy. And the other episode involving a Tamar is in 2 Samuel 13, where Amnon seizes his sister named Tamar, and he takes advantage of her. He rapes her. Again, another awful and horrific episode in Israel's history where God's design for marriage and intimacy is wickedly distorted. And these are horrific stories, and they would immediately be called to mind when somebody says, you, my beloved, are a beautiful Tamar. What is significant here, though, is that the king is taking something connected with shame, with, with horror, with disgust, and he's using it for the opposite. He's redeeming it. He takes what's connected with pain, and he's, trying, he's rewriting the story. He's taking that which was associated with evil, and he associates it with good again. He's, it's as if he's redeeming marriage, just like he redeems Israel. You see, unlike the wicked Judah and the wicked Amnon who took their Tamars and used them to gratify their own lusts, this king, this Davidic son, this idealized Solomon is instead approaching his palm tree, his Tamar, with glory and with goodness. Verse 8, I, will say, I say I will climb my palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. The language here of clusters of the vine is reminiscent of another famous clusters of fruit. When the spies came back from the promised land in Numbers 13, 23, but, but unlike the spies that were too afraid to enter into the promised land, this king is not 
afraid to approach his Tamar. And the scene can be very encouraging for each of us because each of us has a history like the nation of Israel. Each of us has moments in our lives where we look back upon and we grimace. We lament. We weep. We may even have horror when we reflect upon those past events. You, you may not have an episode as horrific as Genesis 38 or 2 Samuel 13, or maybe you do. Maybe you've been mistreated, you've been abused, or maybe you were the one who did the mistreating. Either way, we have in this story a picture of a king, of an idealized Solomon who is rewriting history by reliving it well. He's undoing the wrongs and he's setting them right and he's pointing us to the one who will come and who will relive the history of Israel in perfect righteousness. When, they say that, when the Bible says that Jesus is the new Israel, he's the obedient one where the nation of Israel transgressed. He took responsibility for Israel's sin. He lived the righteous life that they should have lived. He was put forward by the Father as a sacrifice of atonement and propitiation for their sins. And so what is it that you are going to do with your sinful past? With your dark secrets that you hope nobody will ever find out about? You can try and bury them. Just pack them in. Just don't think about it living in fear that somehow it's going to see the light of day and you're going to be ruined. Or you can take them to Jesus. Faith in Jesus is the only way for true peace and joy. Rather than fear, Jesus can take those fears and take them to the grave, bearing your sin, your condemnation, your impurity, your shame, and giving you peace and freedom and purity instead. And so if you have a history like that of Israel's with, with pain, with perversion, this story can give you hope. Because by faith in Jesus Christ, the perfect Davidic king, you can experience joy and intimacy with God. You can turn your painful past around. See, he delights in taking Tamars and turning them into fruitful palm trees. His delight is taking his bride who was soiled and dirty and making her clean and lovely and beautiful. This, this song paints the king as a hero, as a redeemer, and that hero is Jesus Christ. Trust in him. And we've seen the, the bride's beauty praised. We've seen the king's intention. Now let's look at the final three verses and see the bride's intention. The bride's intention. She says in verse 10, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The bride begins this section with familiar words. She says, I am my beloved." And his desire is for me. It's a similar construction to chapter 2, verse 16, where she said, my beloved is mine and I am his. Not exactly the same. In chapter 6, she said, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Again, similar, but not the same. Now she modifies the statement. She says something deeper. 
more powerful. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. The word desire is significant. And it's significant because it's very infrequently used in the Old Testament. In fact, it's only used three times. The first is in chapter 3 of Genesis, when God is pronouncing a curse upon the woman. God says, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to or against your husband. And he shall rule over you. And the other time that the word desire is used is in the very next chapter. Genesis 4, verse 7. God tells Cain that sin is crouching at his door and that sin's desire is against you or contrary to you but you must rule over it, desire and rule. Same words from Genesis 3, 16, and the curse. And these passages are complementary. They, they help us understand the nature of the desire in that context. And that nature of the desire is not good. Sin wants to master Cain. It wants to dominate Cain. It wants to do him in. And so too will the curse manifest itself in the woman having a desire against her husband or contrary to her husband. She was made to be a helper fit for him. But now, because of sin, because of a fallen world, she'll not want to remain a helper. She'll want to be the dominator, the leader. And so the result is they reject God's plan. And so too will fallen man be cursed. He will want to rule over or rule harshly to dominate his wife. The marriage relationship is suffering under the curse. And with all that in the background, why in the world would Solomon choose that word in this text about love? It doesn't make sense. Why would he bring up the word laden with such negative connotations like the curse of the world? She says, I am my beloved." And his desire is for me. She's using language. She's picturing the reversal of the curse. She's relinquishing her desire to rule. And she's placing the desire back where it belongs, in the heart of her husband. His desire is for me. She's picturing the restoration of what godly marriage was intended to be before sin ever came. And so this chapter ends with a picture of marriage being set right, undoing the curse, redeeming marriage itself from the sinful desires that come with it in a cursed and fallen world. Too often we have marriages that suffer because the man acts like his father, Adam. He either fails to lead or he leads harshly and domineeringly. And the wife fails to be the helper that God intended her to be. She wants to take the wheel. And yet here we have a picture of the reversal of the curse. Just like all of humanity was plunged into sin and placed under a curse, so now the bride is experiencing the blessed state of being liberated from the curse. And I think this passage very clearly points to another son of David. 
another Davidic king who would come and undo the curse as far as it is found. We're reminded of this messianic hope that this king would come. He would make things right. He would provide a way back into the garden, as it were. Back into communion. Back to the way that things were before sin came and messed everything up. But it also points us to another garden. We all know the Bible begins with a garden, but it, it also ends with a lot of garden language as well. In Revelation 21 and 22, we see a scene of heaven that parallels descriptions of Eden in many ways. Eden had rivers flowing from it. Revelation 22, there's the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God Himself. There were trees in the garden, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life, and so too in Revelation 22, we see the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, the text says. And just like God created the garden in a state that was upright and holy, with no sin, and no curse. So too do we find the explicit absence of curse. Revelation 22 verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. For the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. The love of the bride and the king here in Song of Solomon 7. Anticipates this kind of eternal communion. Between God and His people united together. In a garden, secure, holy, united, uncursed, redeemed, beautiful, and blissful. No more sin, no more pain. That's where the text points us. And if we go back to verse 12, we can see the bride is eager to experience this communion. She says, let us, let us go out early. Let's not wait. Let's go now to the vineyards to see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened, the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. She intends to commune with him with, with a description so attractive. Who would want to wait? She longs to be with her king. She invites him in. Verse 13, the, the mandrakes give forth fragrance and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new and old which I've laid up for you, my beloved. She mentions mandrakes, verse 13. That's the root of a plant that's associated with fertility. In fact, the only other time that that word is used is in chapter 30 of Genesis, where Leah buys Jacob from Rachel for the price of a bunch of mandrakes. Again, we see words associated very clearly, with a shameful moment in Israel's history, being tied to bad marriage memories, being overturned and being redeemed, bad associations overwritten by good ones, painful memories exchanged for all kinds of choice fruits. And so within the story, the, the bride's memories 
of mistreating her husband are long replaced. In, in Israel's history, God is poetically replacing memories of Israel's harlotry and unfaithfulness with fresh remembrances of faithfulness and of love. And within the scope of redemptive history, the whole Bible, we, we can see here the unfaithfulness, the sinfulness of Christ's bride being replaced with the joyful celebration of His faithfulness and love towards her. And a bride that's so treated, treated so well by such a king, will desire to open up to him. And that's where we can land with a brief application and a final reflection. The application is simply this. Husbands, love your wives as the king in this text loves his bride. As Christ loves his bride, freely forgiving, not holding a long record of wrongs, wooing her with his love. And wives, nothing would bless your husbands more than for you to love them as the bride loves her king in this text. She's, she's inviting, she's promising, she's bringing all manner of choice fruits, new and old, she says. There's nothing stagnant here. Nothing dated. Their love's not stale and rote and routine. It's a fresh love. It's not going to grow stale. And that's a that's a perfect way to point to the Lord's Supper because it there we see everlasting, never fading, never stale love. The Lord's Supper is a picture week by week by week, by week, until we get to the final day, the final garden. He's giving us a taste of His never-ending, fruitful, and faithful love. This meal is His affirmation to His bride. His willing embrace, His wooing you back. If your heart was cold this week and you rebuffed your king, He's wooing you back. This is the myrrh on the doorknob. To bring you back in. He's pursuing you. He reminds you of His faithfulness and what He's gone through to redeem His bride. And so even if you've had a rough history like Israel did, a history with shameful episodes, of filthy moments, of things you wish you could always just forget and never remember again, then remember that Christ pursues that bride and he has better knowledge of your sin than you do and he washed you and he did so at the cost of his own life that's the sacrifice pictured at this table the the blood and the body broken and shed for you so if you're trusting in christ if you're like the saints in acts 2 devoted to god's word and to fellowship and to prayer the breaking of bread, then we invite you to join us. But if you haven't trusted in Christ, then let, let the elements go by. Be reconciled to Christ and His bride, and then you can join us at the table. We'll process down the center aisle and then around to the edges, back to our seats. Then we'll all partake of the elements together. Let me pray, and then we'll begin. Our Father, we thank You for Your faithful Son, that you have sent to be the faithful bridegroom who is the true son of David, the true and final Israel who 
succeeded where all of the forefathers failed, who succeeded where we have failed in every way. We thank you for his love that he demonstrates for us. That even though we reject him, we spurn his advances, we ignore his knocking too often, he woos us back with grace and love. Help us to remember that and feed us during this time we pray. In Christ's name, amen.